You're listening to So What? The podcast that explores why library and information science research matters. We interview researchers about their work. And they connect the dots between what they do and its importance to your life. Okay, let's get on it. Hello, my name is Alex Mayhew of the Faculty of Information and Media Studies here at the University of Western Ontario, which I insist on calling it despite the rebranding as Western University. Today I'm with Sarah Cornwell. Sarah, tell us a bit about yourself. I'm also a student in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at the University of Western Ontario. I mean, it's called the University of Western Ontario in the law, so... I mean, Let's how many Western <laughs> universities are there out there? Um, whenever I try and log into Open Athens, I find a few. Yeah. yeah, there's one in like Australia. I think disambiguation is a very useful thing that names can provide. So. I mean, we like organizing things. So that's part of the reason we're here. A little bit. <laughs> All right, what are you bringing to us today? Well, I'm here to talk about languages and how we organize languages, or at least the most common system for. Well, the most common system I've found for organizing languages on the internet. Uh, so those of us who are uh, raised feral and have no concept of language, what is a language? <laughs> well, the easiest way to say what a language is, is it's a complex communication system that humans use. And it can, it's most commonly audio, but sign languages are equally languages. They share all of the same features and complexity. The problem stop starts when you try to define not what language is, but what a language is. Interesting. All right, tell me more. Well, basically the thing is languages evolve like animals do or like species do. Um, and sometimes the line between them, just like it can be in species uh, divides, is blurry and not exactly clear. But we'd still have a sense, you know, that they exist because I have a really hard time speaking to, say, a Swedish person who can't speak English, or a Bantu speaker, or any one of the other. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> we don't know what a language is. How many are there? Uh, I was going to ask. <laughs> but the thing we're going to talk about today is the ethnologue, which is kind of the current reigning framework for uh, how we classify and organize languages and they're the ones who so far have dealt with um, splitting up groups of speakers into definable chunks. And they say in the 20th edition of the Ethnologue that there are 7,099 human languages. That's very specific. And those are currently existing ones? Yes. Okay. Though there are estimates that, you know, a language loses a last living speaker every few weeks, so... You can never get an exact number. That's fair. And sad. It is incredibly devastating. <laughs> but that's not what I came here to talk about. <laughs> Though we can talk about it if you want. There's this plenty goes. of tape left. <laughs> tape? Where am I? Oh, sorry. So what's the ethnologue? What's the ethnologue? Let's start with that. Okay, so the ethnologue was originally a published book. Uh, it moved online uh, in the late, late 90s, early 2000s. And it is basically a list of all of the world's languages. It gives them each a three-letter code, um, and those three-letter codes were used to form um, the International Standard Organization number 639-3. ISO, uh, yeah. Yes, the ISO standard. Um, and that standard 
is used by the Internet Engineering Task Force uh, to make the language tag system that's used in HTML5. So it's also used in Microsoft Windows and in Wikimedia and in the Library of Congress classification system. And those are just English letters, right? Oh, they use a Latin alphabet, but, you know, they're everybody's letters. <laughs> Fair enough. That was a rather uh, uh, culturally imperialist of me. Twas. Mm. But the interesting thing about the ethnologue, and I think something that, an assumption that a lot of people make about languages is that they exist. I would agree. <laughs> and I don't want to say that they don't, and I don't even necessarily want to get into all of the arguments for why they may or may not exist, though I will recommend a paper and sources by um, Robert J. Staten of the philosophy uh, department here at Western. He works in philosophy of languages, and he wrote a cool paper called uh, The Deranged Argument Against, or maybe for, public languages. He's arguing that there is such a thing as languages, and ultimately I agree. But the fact that so many people just immediately assume that it's necessarily true is interesting, I think. It does seem like something that is at least worth questioning. Yeah, well, you like to question everything, and that's why part of what I like about you. Fair enough. <laughs> So why might there not be languages? Basically, because languages change so slowly, well, it can feel fast at times when you hear kids use words, kids new slang days. words. Um, it feels like language can be getting away from you. But really, a lot of the most important features of language that allow us to communicate with each other change very slowly, like the sounds of vowels or consonants, word order. A lot of these things are fairly, fairly stable, but they do change. But part of the thing is that different features, such as the sound of one vowel or the way that we might use one adverb, change differently in different locations. So even if you look across English, you'll see that, like, say, Irish speakers don't really use the th sound. They use more t and d to replace th and th. <laughs> Uh, in Canadian English, uh, we've merged two vowels that are separate in most English dialects. Um, so we pronounce caught, the bed, and caught, as in the past tense of catch, the same. But a lot of English dialects pronounce them differently. We also have Canadian raising. Vowel fry is, a, for some reason, controversial language sound change because young women do it. So uh, people like to say that it's bad. <laughs> The main thing that I'm getting at here is that language change isn't directional, and while it does follow patterns, those patterns are different regionally, which results in, over hundreds of years, the creation of new languages, maybe. Depending on what exactly a language Depending is. Depending on what a language is. The definition that I like and that is uh, popular would uh, be from Max Weinreich, who is a Yiddish language philosopher um, in the mid-19th century, who said that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. Basically, if your speakers have power, then they get to decide how people speak, what language the government uses, what languages the courts use, and that sort of power is, institutional power is what gives languages strength, and what lets them rise above this mysterious notion of dialect, which is really all we can say about the way that we speak scientifically, that 
there are lots of different ways. One of the other ways of defining, say, what a language would be, would be to say that we can understand each other. That's how we know that we're speaking the same language. But that's not necessarily the way that the ethnologue does it. So it's maybe not necessarily I'll... the way I do it. I mean, I don't always understand my parents, but... You might not understand their meaning, but you maybe understand the words that they say. I'm not going to argue the point. <laughs> Anyways, so how does the ethnologue... Given that linguists don't necessarily agree, philosophers of language don't necessarily agree that there are languages, linguists don't necessarily study an entire language as much as they dis- study individual dialects of language, for example. They take samples from Canadian English or from Belfast English or from New Zealand English, but we still would all say that we speak English, probably. And that is part of the definition that the ethnologue uses. So they they use three main factors that are linguistic, i.e. the two people who are both speaking, how can we decide if they speak the same language or not? Is there linguistic similarity? Do they understand each other? Do they sound like they're speaking the same language on some sort of base level? But as well, there are socio-cultural and political factors. So do they want to be speaking the same language? That's part of the definition of what a language is. And you can see that political division in places like India and Pakistan, where Urdu and Hindi could potentially be defined as two dialects of the same language, as well as Serbian and Croatian. But there are other places where you could say that they, or this is an interesting one. I've been watching a TV show called Dairy Girls just set in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. And there are sociolinguistic studies that show that the Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland have different separate dialectical features. Fascinating. But they say that, we say that they both speak English because of sociocultural and political reasons. We want to say that they both speak English. There's no reason except for our own wants. Once you get past mutual understanding, there's no reason to say, why two people speak the same language. And there are even cases where people can't understand each other, entirely speak with no mutual understanding, but we say that they do speak the same language, and the ethnologue says that they speak the same language. The two biggest examples are with the ethnologue's two what they call macro languages, I think because this lack of mutual understanding or mutual comprehensibility makes it difficult to say that they are truly one language, uh, which are Chinese and Arabic. If you put a Moroccan Arabic speaker in the same room as a Syrian Arabic speaker, sure, they can communicate, but it's going to be more difficult. They might rely on uh, standard Arabic, which is generally more of a written form rather than the forms that they would speak at home with their families. Um, If you put Cantonese and Mandarin speakers in the same room, the ethnologue says they're both speaking Chinese, but they might not be able to understand one another. And the ethnologue says that they're actually like multiple well anyways it's hard i don't want to necessarily get into too much about politics about in this but it really is a story about politics well as you say if uh, <laughs> languages are in some part defined by power and politics is the study of power or possibly exercise of power <laughs> well yeah that's it and who has the power in this study right or who has the power when it comes to languages And 
that is, I think, also an interesting question because we've been talking about the ethnologue and we've been talking about its status as a book and now an online database and its status as the basis for the ISO standard, which becomes the basis for how we label languages in Wikipedia and on the internet in general. Google knows to return English language sites to you when you search in English, uh, when you have it set to English, because it checks for these kinds of language tags. And there are a lot of these language tags because there are a lot of politically separate languages. But the ethnologue as a political entity is not neutral and not necessarily scientific. Tell me a bit about this history here. Yes. So the ethnologue was originally produced by what was then known as the Summer Institute of Linguistics, which sounds like the linguistics school, but it is not, which is why it later changed its name to SIL International. SIL International and the Summer Institute of Linguistics are actually a mission, Christian missionary organization. With their central goal, and why are they interested in languages? Why would a Christian missionary institute be interested in languages? You can only imagine just because they have a deep abiding love of languages. Bibles! They want to give people Bibles. Yes, exactly. They want to give people Bibles. They want to spread um, the good word, as it were, to every person on earth. And to do so, you need to be able to communicate in the language that those people speak. And if you can translate a Bible into every language of the people that you are proselytizing how do you pronounce proselytizing proselytizing if you can pronounce if you can pronounce the word proselytizing in the language of the people that you're proselytizing to then uh you could potentially convince them to convert to your religion and uh that is their goal and was their goal and though they make it less obvious in their website now that has driven the inclusion of different descriptive factors into the ethnologue. Why do they decide to include the religious affiliation of members of every language? Because it's relevant to their goals. Uh, why do they rank languages on their healthfulness um, so that they can decide where to spend information on languages that are healthier? They want to spend their resources towards where people will be speaking that language in the future. Trying to maximize their converts. Of course. And you can imagine why having such an organization basically in charge of deciding what is a language and what isn't could be problematic. That is very interesting. Do you know how they got assigned that role by the ISO? Well, the short answer is uh, we let them. <laughs> No one uh, else was doing it? The ethnologue is a huge, huge um, process. Like, when you think about the fact that they have 7,999 languages described in the 20th edition, that's more than 7,099 people. For sure. Right? That's a year's worth of effort. You know, 10% of the world of the world of the world's languages are spoken by 90% of the population, meaning 90% of us speak only around 700, no, 70 languages. Mandarin, English, Spanish, Arabic gets less from there. But if you take the top 70, you're speaking about 90% of the world's population. That means the remaining 10% of the population holds 90% of the our knowledge of the world's languages and 90% of the diversity of the world's languages, which again, going back to why it's so sad when languages uh, lose living speakers, because this is 
human culture and human knowledge represented in a unique and special way. And only 10% of the world holds 90% of that special knowledge. And the people who speak those languages are usually not that easy to find or easy to contact. Sure, you can find endangered language speakers anywhere. Like there are some living in Toronto. There are probably some living in London. But really, there are a few hot spots that they call in the world that have huge amounts of linguistic diversity. The Amazonian rainforest, Papua New Guinea. (laughs) Papua New Guinea is a really amazing place uh, in terms of language diversity. But you can imagine that these people are not easy to contact. So their languages are not easy to describe. So um, the amount of work that went into the ethnologue and created it is not minute or easy to replicate. Fair enough. I could see why the ISO would be willing to uh, defer in this case. And I don't want to say that the ethnologue got this opportunity to be the registry authority and the 15th edition of the ethnologue was what was basically um, copy-pasted into the ISO standard. There was a little bit of controversy. Um, The Society for the Study of Indigenous Languages of the Americas was the one of the biggest groups that spoke out against just giving a missionary organization this kind of immense power over our regulatory standard. But in the end, they agreed to it as well because the ethnologue is so big and was so difficult to create and honestly has few problems in the scheme of things. A ringing endorsement if I've ever heard one. Well, let me read you some of the uh, reviews from uh, if you look in scholarly journals, uh, you can read uh, different reviews. So one by Campbell and Grandona in 2008, they said uh, the ethnologue is truly excellent, highly valuable, and the very best book of its sort available. And uh, Hammerstrom in 2007 wrote similarly, the ethnologue continues to be the best single source on the living languages of the world in spite of its bad sides. I mean, that's is an endorsement. They are. And such goes power. They had power. They made a great and powerful system. And now it's really hard to replace that system. Speaking of replacing, did you have any thoughts on that? Honestly, I don't think that there are enough problems to replace it outright, though there are potentially options. One that I like is called the glottolog. Rather than dealing with languages, the glottolog takes a more scientific approach and kind of just defines things from dialect up to family, but doesn't necessarily give any of the levels, the label language, because the term language is so uh, politically weighty. Checking out the the glottolog, which is more of a community-edited wiki-style list of all the world's dialects uh, is really cool, though I can see how it wouldn't be super useful for websites because are we going to start labeling Catholic and Protestant Irish websites separately? I mean, they maybe have different dialects. Are we going to start labeling Canadian and New Zealand websites differently? It would be interesting to have uh, the entire web down to that level of granularity. But and, I mean, it could be an interesting thing if we could work out how to search it. Like, so I'm willing to read things from, but I don't know. Well, we already have a problem with siloing on the internet. I don't necessarily know if I want to encourage <laughs> siloing by language even more than it already is. This might be a bit of a tangent, but it does kind of remind me in uh, 
classification of life and biology. Mm. You have Linnaeus who created all the labels that we still use, and those labels are incredibly useful, even though his idea of what those labels describe has basically been completely replaced. It's really similar. <laughs> it's it's almost like the world is made up of repeating patterns and they happen everywhere. Oh, that sounds really complicated. Change by mutation is, I don't know. It's just, Seems to be accurate. I don't know. We like to copy things and slightly change them. Memes. Mimetic mutation is Mimetic mutation, thing. it's amazing. Uh, so in terms of other options to try and solve the and I, and I find it even hard to say that there's necessarily a problem. There are definitely problems with the ethnologue. I think that the biggest one uh, surrounds their ratings of language health. And it's a difficult problem, partially because uh, it's both a helpful tool and a harmful tool. It's helpful to know what languages are growing and are going to require more resources in future. Um, it's helpful to know... Uh, for linguists who are interested in revitalizing languages and for people who speak those languages, it's helpful to know that your language might be in trouble so that you can try and get a hold on it before things get worse. But for some languages, it can be politically, it's hard to argue for thousands, hundreds to thousands to millions of dollars to be put towards a language that's essentially on life support. And if the biggest authority in the world on what is and isn't a language says that your language is quote-unquote dying, that's a hard pill to swallow and makes advocating for protecting and revitalizing and putting that language on life for support really difficult. <laughs> so it's a, a double-edged sword. Well, do you think there's anything the ISO could do to make it so that Perhaps uh, the ethnologue doesn't have supreme power. Uh, yeah, I think the simplest solution in that would just be adding an additional registration authority. Any suggestions? The Society for the Study of Indigenous Languages of the Americas could be a, that's a start. That's a good start. <laughs> um, seeing as two of the hotspots for endangered languages are in the Americas, that being Brazil and uh, the Pacific Northwest in North America, yeah. They do have a lot of knowledge and expertise on languages, uh, minority languages that are spoken here, and they could help. Are you <laughs> familiar with any similar organizations covering uh, Papua New Guinea? I am not, but I'm sure that they exist. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, this project, I started working on this project as a class project, and the more I talk about it, the more interested I am in it, so I mean, it's that's utterly, another thread to go down. Utterly fascinating. I think so. Um, the other solution that is, of course, a political quagmire is that UNESCO, the United Nations um, cultural uh, organization, is trying to create its own classification scheme, which I suppose would be great. But as with everything in the UN, it, it moves slowly. And three years ago, their uh, estimated completion date was 2030, so... No updates since then. I mean, that's only another 11 years. Who knows? Yeah, they uh, they could come through. <laughs> they could come through with the great classification scheme. I mean, they did eliminate polio. Did they? I read uh, yesterday, this morning, 
that polio is almost eradicated in Africa. So yeah, that's been close. the case for three years. I thought you they had finally what? done it. You know what? I'll take <laughs> They're it. Getting really close. Power to them. <laughs> They're getting really close. They got rid of smallpox. I'll take it. Yeah. I don't know if that was UNESCO specifically. I think that was like the WHO and UNICEF. I'm going <laughs> to count it under the umbrella of the UN. Sure. Um, but I mean, in all likelihood, they're going to use parts of the ethnologue as a backbone. That's part of the thing about classification structures. They become calcified and repeated because it takes so much work to create them and because they're so enmeshed in so many other places. So you said they started as a uh, class project. Can you tell me a bit about that? So I took a class with you. <laughs> took a class with you uh, on critical theory for which we read an amazing book that I'll also put a source for in the notes, Classification and Its Consequences by Jeffrey Bowker and Lee Starr in 1999. And Bowker and Starr talk a lot about, about how classification structures, though invisible in much of our day-to-day life, organize how we think about things and organize almost how we can act on and think about things. If you want to read the book, which I highly recommend because as academic texts go, it's incredibly engaging and relevant despite being written 20 years ago. They cover the International Classification of Disease, the ICD. They also cover uh, race classification in apartheid South Africa. And they cover how tuberculosis was classified through um, the 20th century. And it's, I basically wanted to take their theory and apply it to how we think about language. And I found the ethnologue as the main way that we've decided to organize languages. And the more I read, the stranger I realized it was, or it. The more typical, actually, I realized it was because classification is not – humans naturally want to classify, but classifications are not natural. Categories are human constructed. Yes. It is natural to want to make them, but the choices that we make aren't necessarily better than the choices that someone else would make. The patterns and regularities that exist out there in the universe are not one and the same as the categories we make for them. Exactly. And there's often no way to make perfect categories because there are always boundary objects. I think actually both and Star talk about classification systems themselves as boundary objects because they can be applied in many different places and across different boundaries. But within those class- classification systems, there are always things that resist being neatly classified. In apartheid South Africa, they talk a lot about mixed-race children. In the ICD, they talk about abortion. And in the ethnologue, what I would say is equivalent to these would be um, Creole languages. Uh, So Creoles um, and the pigeons that they come from, uh, so basically also come from colonialization, you know, uh, just making making changes across the world everywhere. So uh, pidgin is a language that's created in a 
situation of language contact. So two groups of people speak different languages. Usually there's one language with more power, like a colonial language, and then there are um, indigenous languages or potentially another colonial language or a language that's spoken in, like, religious way. Um, and when people, when these people come together, they make a new language baby that they use to communicate, which is honestly really kind of lovely, even though it comes out of often negative situations. I would say a lot of people know about Hawaiian pidgin, which uh, is actually recognized as like a separate language. So another, I guess, way that people try to say what is and isn't a language. Pigeons are ones that are spoken by adults and learned by adults. So they're not always entirely regular in terms of grammar um, in the way that linguists would like to say that something is uh, like an official mode of communication as opposed to like a makeshift code or other kind of communication structure. But a creole is when babies start learning a pigeon as their first language. And babies are amazing at language. Children are amazing at language. And they make the complex grammatical structures necessary to make that communication function as language. And there are tons of them over the world. You want to look. Tokpizin is one of the main languages of Papua New Guinea, because when you have as many languages as you do in Papua New Guinea, why not additionally make a Creole? Tokpizin comes from English and some of the Malay languages that were spoken in, that are still spoken in Papua New Guinea. There are Creoles everywhere. <laughs> there are some that are made even like within established, like they don't all result from colonialism. Getting back on track to mixed languages. So... Um, the ethnologue does try to organize languages into their respective language families, which are family trees that work more or less like every other kind of tree by descent (laughs) that you may have seen. Um, But there are some language families on the list that are a little strange. And uh, one of those is the Creole and Uh, mixed language families because when you have a creole you're essentially taking um, branches from two different trees and grafting them together into a new tree but because language families historically have been kind of defined as binaries it's hard to say that you come from two different things Uh, To use the biology example again. Please do. The classification of life has long had a difficulty with hybridization. How do you count this species? What part, what branch does it belong on? Exactly. Phylogenetics is what I was developed to solve that. And where do they put mules? Mm -hmm. What species label do you give them? What family do you put them in? Linnaeus has a problem with that. Phylogenetics is able to deal with it a lot better. Be interested to know how exactly, but me too. I um, just told it can. The ethnologue has basically lumped all Creole languages together, which they do tend to share some features um, because of the rather occasionally unusual circumstances from which they come. The ethnologue organizes Creoles, 
and mixed languages separately. Um, they don't necessarily say what's the difference between why something would get to be called a mixed, go in the family called mixed language, even though the family members aren't necessarily related to one another versus uh, Creole. But the way that it tends to be organized is they choose one language to be the primary language and an then they just say, like, oh, this is kind of based on that. So you can see in the ethnologue, they have two languages that are based on Afrikaans, based on three that are based on Arabic, one that's based on Assamese, 33 that are based on English, because uh, they're, they're great at colonizing, 11 that are based in French, 14 that are based in Malay, because Malay people are just great at traveling. But... How can you decide when a language is, which one of your parents you're based on? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And it tends to, if you look down the list, though there are exceptions, because a lot of them come from colonialism, they'll be based on a language from the Indo-European tree. But for some reason, they're not considered Indo-European languages. Fascinating. I mean, structurally, they might have more in common with each other, even if they're not descended from the same things, because the process of creating creoles tends to um, favor more simplistic morphological structures, and you base things, more, you change the meaning in sentences based more on syntax than morphology, but like, also, they get all of their words from someplace, they get their lexicon from someplace, and it's not like all Creole speakers from Arabic-based Creole speakers who speak, say, Nubi, which is the language of Uganda, can understand Creole speakers who are, say, Malay-based speakers of Manando, which is spoken in Indonesia. Just because their languages have structural similarities doesn't necessarily mean that they're similar as languages. Similar structure does not mean mutual intelligibility. No. And I mean, honestly, that's true for any language family. That's why they're considered family members and not the same language. But it feels kind of icky to me to kind of toss all of these children of colonialism into a bag together and be like, you're there. <laughs> it does seem to be... Uh whitewashing history to a degree. And not accepting these languages for what they are, which is both. I mean, but with a tree-based classification system, you have to choose one place to put them. But rather than choosing either A, their, the colonialist parent, or B, the usually more than one um, other side of the coin, indigenous language, often spoken by speakers who are actually not in their indigenous home, but have been taken from their home, or people who have either been taken from their home for the languages that came from slave trades, or people that have been put into an urban situation where they are mixing with a lot of other languages. What would you want people to take away from this? I want people to notice classification structures. I want people to think critically about classification structures. And I want people to be proud of the way that they speak, no matter what language they speak, and to feel that their language is adequately and fairly represented in 
the world. And that includes being adequately and fairly represented and described in structural systems like the ethnologue. I think that's a wonderful set of messages. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I hope to have you back on again someday. This has been another episode of So What? The podcast about library and information science research and why it matters. So What? is created and produced by students at the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at Western University in London, Ontario. Find us online at sowhat.fims.uwo.ca. 